Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 687 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 16th of April 2023 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking about the challenges of small press publishing with John Barton from Vertebrate, a British publisher of adventure books, and his lessons learned have a lot of parallels with the indie author business especially at this mature point in the market, when many authors are considering publishing others. So we talk about sticking to a niche, the need to change the types of products we sell as the market shifts, dealing with contractual terms, the importance of marketing, and how best to pitch a publisher if that's something you want to do. It's a great conversation, and I think you'll find it useful however you want to publish. So that's coming up in the interview section. Right, I'm doing a another big introduction this week in publishing, book marketing, futurist and personal news all rolled into one because the big news this week in AI is that Amazon AWS, which is their web services business, has launched Bedrock, its new suite of large language model options, including generative AI for text, images and more. Yes, Amazon now has generative AI tools available. Now, this is important because many authors and people in the publishing industry have basically told me that this will all get shut down at some point, and this has meant that people have avoided engaging. But now Amazon has their own generative AI options, it's clear that there will be an explosion in this kind of content. So I'm going to go through the press release, links in the show notes as ever, but this is essentially from aws.amazon.com and the blog that came out this week. So from the press release, we are truly at an exciting inflection point in the widespread adoption of machine learning, ML. And we believe most customer experiences and applications will be reinvented with generative AI. They first talk about this being nothing new. AI and machine learning, ML, have been a focus for Amazon for over 20 years. And many of the capabilities customers use with Amazon are driven by machine learning. Our e-commerce recommendations engine is driven by machine learning. And they give many more examples. But the fact that the e-commerce recommendation engine is most relevant to us. And when authors have told me they would never use AI, it's the main thing I point to. If you publish on Amazon or you shop on Amazon, you are already using AI. And we have been training these models for over 20 years. (laughs) Just think of how much data they have from each of us. From the press release, today I'm excited to announce several new innovations that will make it easy and practical for our customers to use generative AI in their businesses. And just in case you don't know, lots and lots of companies that you use every day run on AWS. Generative AI is a type of AI that can create new content and ideas, including conversations, stories, images, videos, and music. Like all AI, 
Generative AI is powered by machine learning models. Very large models that are pre-trained on vast amounts of data and commonly referred to as foundation models, FMs. <laughs> While the capabilities and resulting possibilities of a pre-trained foundational model are amazing, customers get really excited because these generally capable models can also be customised to perform domain-specific functions that are differentiating to their businesses, using only a small fraction of the data and compute required to train a model from scratch. And this is the bit I want you to listen to. The customised foundation models can create a unique customer experience, embodying the company's voice, style and services across a wide variety of consumer industries. So please <laughs> swap out the word company because I run a one-person company for author. So it would read, embodying the author's voice, style and services across a wide variety of consumer industries. While ChatGPT has been the first broad generative AI experience to catch customers' attention, most folks studying generative AI have quickly come to realise that several companies have been working on foundation models for years. There are several different foundation models available, each with unique strengths and characteristics. So yes, there are far more than just OpenAI's GPT. So today we are excited to announce Amazon Bedrock, a new service that makes foundation models from A1 AI21 Labs, Anthropic, Stability AI and Amazon accessible via an API. Now that might sound a bit technical to you, but essentially it's like a, an interface into this model or these models because there's multiple. Bedrock is the easiest way for customers to build and scale generative AI based applications using foundation models, democratizing ac access for all builders. So essentially, just to get into this a bit more, I don't want to get too technical, but it is important for you to understand. So this includes access into Anthropic's Claude, which is essentially similar to ChatGPT for text generation, as well as Stable Diffusion, which is like mid-journey for images, as well as Jurassic 2, which specialises in European languages, Spanish, French, German, Portuguese, Dutch, Italian, which <laughs> since the trend in indie right now is translation, is very interesting. Amazon is also opening access to its own large foundational model, Titan. <laughs> Such a good word. Titan. Which then companies can fine-tune to their requirements. And again, this is where you need to pay attention. Businesses building on these platforms can keep their data private, build their own models and run them on dedicated servers. And this has many, many implications. First of all, private models on the Amazon Bedrock platform with their own data. So every company can have their own generative text and image models. And any company can use AWS to do this. And in fact, any company using Microsoft Azure has all the open AI stuff. Any company running on Google Cloud has Bard and their suite of AI tools. So that pretty much covers almost every company in the Western Hemisphere <laughs> of any size. And China has their own generative AI ecosystem. 
Of course, we're still waiting to hear from Apple. Fingers crossed they will blow us all away when they finally announce whatever they are working on, which may well be the first augmented reality headset. And of course, generative AI will be used to populate whatever the metaverse becomes. But that is further ahead. What is right now is the press release from Amazon. One of the most important capabilities of Bedrock is how easy it is to customise a model. Customers simply point Bedrock at a few labelled examples and the service can fine-tune the model for a particular task without having to annotate large volumes of data. And this is the crux. As few as 20 examples is enough. 20. (laughs) So their example is, Imagine a content marketing manager who works at a leading fashion retailer needs to develop fresh, targeted ad campaign copy for an upcoming new line of handbags. Of course, you could substitute author for their new book. (laughs) To do this, they provide Bedrock a few labelled examples of their best performing taglines along with the associated product description and Bedrock will automatically generate effective social media, display ad and web copy for the new handbags slash book. None of the customer's data is used to train the underlying models. And since all data is encrypted and does not leave the customer's private cloud, customers can trust their data will remain private and confidential. Bedrock makes the power of foundational models accessible to companies of all sizes, so they can accelerate the use of machine learning across their organisations and build their own generative AI applications. So let's apply this to the publishing industry. So this means that a company that owns a certain amount of data in a niche, for example, paranormal romance novels or cosy mystery novels or self-help books, can now fine-tune a language model to their parameters and specifications and output new material in that voice. So remember the press release said 20 examples is enough. So if you have 20 books or even 20 short stories or 20 blog posts, that's enough to fine tune to your voice. And of course, this is episode 600 and whatever it is. So yeah, (laughs) crazy. This is similar to GPT-4, which is a step change from GPT-3.5 in terms of creative fiction writing, which I have used to write in my voice as Joanna Penn and as J.F. Penn. And by the way, at this point, As of uh, mid-April 2023, I have not published any of that, (laughs) but I have tried it out as both of my brands and it is very, very good. It's definitely publishable. But the problem with using your own data on ChatGPT or OpenAI or the open source models like Midjourney is that anyone else can use it. And this is why ChatGPT was banned in Italy, because essentially there's no, no privacy and the privacy is difficult. But Bedrock opens up access to fine-tuning in private for even small companies. Now, Microsoft Azure is really for big enterprise. And if you work for a corporate, you probably are running on Microsoft Azure. And that has their own generative AI, which is the open AI stuff. But I've been using AWS for over a decade myself with my very small business. Having a private language model would also be further proof for things like copyright. If I had proof of creation on my own private Bedrock account, whatever that means, any book I publish or images I use or my voice or whatever would be based on my data. Plus, you could write books in your own universe with a model fine-tuned on your world. 
Now, since Amazon now has their own text and image generation tools, and most of the companies we all use run on AWS or on Azure or on Google or one of the other cloud services I mentioned, there can be no question that Amazon will accept books that are AI assisted and those with AI generated images incorporated into their covers because you can use the Amazon tools to do that. Now, I've been saying this for a while now, but this is no longer futurist. This is now. You have to engage, learn about these new options and figure out what you might want to change in your process. The Amazon press release ends. Our mission is to make it possible for developers of all skill levels and for organisations of all sizes to innovate using generative AI. This is just the beginning of what we believe will be the next wave of machine learning powering new possibilities for you. So I have, again, said this before, but it does feel like the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, the beginning of the internet, when we couldn't really see what the next 20 years would turn out like. And there's been amazing things, there's been bad things, and this will be the same. But it's certainly a change. And as the Amazon press relief says, this is just the beginning. Now, to help you adjust to these possibilities, I recommend reading the new book called Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI by Reid Hoffman and co-written with GPT-4. Now, Reid had access to GPT-4 before it became open to other people and co-wrote this book uh, and is now a Wall Street Journal bestseller and, of course, selling on Amazon. So those people who say co-writing with AI books will be banned or whatever, this is already happening. This book has chapters on how generative AI will impact the creative industries, as well as education, justice, journalism, social media, transformation of work, and more. So that's Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI by Reid Hoffman. It will give you a lot to think about and help you formulate an educated opinion as things continue to change. Now, It's also important that you don't believe either end of the spectrum, the hype or the fear mongering. And I hope I've been a middle way voice for you. Yes, I'm AI positive as such, but I'm aware of the difficulties and I want to stay on the side of the angels and engaging is important. Try these things for yourself. Do your own research and form your own opinion. You don't have to share my opinion. I just try to give you information so you can make your own. Decide how you will adapt to the new technology and tools that are emerging. And of course, most of you listening have a day job wherever you are in the world. So consider how this will impact your life in a much bigger way than it will impact authors because most people listening are not full-time authors or full-time creatives. How might your company, whoever you work for or your situation, be impacted by generative AI? But of course, we are authors, so that is where I focus my attention. And this AI-assisted creativity is only going to continue growing. So in related personal news, I just returned from Sevilla, Seville in Spain, where the 20 Book Spain conference was held this week. And it turned out to be the first AI-focused author conference for sure. Michael Anderley, who originally founded the 20 Books to 50K Facebook group a few years back now, I think it was around 2015, he opened the event with a keynote. 
where he talked about pivoting his business based on the developments in AI. And one of the final sessions of the conference was on advanced tips for using Midjourney with ChatGPT to make incredible book cover images. Also, on the last day of the conference, Amazon launched Bedrock, as I've previously mentioned. So this, these things turned a two-day conference into basically an AI conference. Now, there were sessions on lots of things, but the sessions I attended and the conversations I had were all about AI. It is clear that AI tools can be used right now to enhance and amplify whatever your model is. If you write to market, rapid release, and focus on algorithm-based ads, you can do that more effectively with these tools. If you're more artisan and follow the muse like me, writing all over the shop, <laughs> AI tools can help with that too. So Michael Andley, in his various talks, he did some chairing panels as well, Michael talked about a concept of bespoke for businesses like mine which are one-person, artisan-style creative businesses, where it's about my books at my speed without publishing others. I don't write to market. I don't rapid release. I don't like exclusivity. And others choose a different route, and that's okay. I am AI positive and can use AI tools to go deeper into my story, to create new art and images, to help with marketing copy, and to be a creative co-pilot for my projects. The tools help me become a better writer, a better creator, a better marketer, and a better business person. Michael is an entrepreneur, and his company with his wife Judith, LMBPN, is already a mid-sized publisher, with over 350 books published last year, and nearly 2,000 books in total. Now I respect Michael for his ambition and the scale of his business. And while it's not for me, it's instructive to learn from his experience and insights, especially because many authors do aspire to be like Michael and will model him. In his keynote, in the first hour of the 20 Book Seville conference, Michael said that originally the aim for this year had been to grow the business to publish 700 books this year, to double the output. But when ChatGPT exploded onto the scene and the possibilities of GPT-4 became evident, because as I said, it is a real step change, he made a goal for 10,000 books in a year. Yes, 10,000. And I can say this because he did it at a keynote in 20 Books of Bill. So this was in public <laughs> and I did tell Michael I would be talking about it on the show. So 10,000 books in a year. Now again... Michael is a true entrepreneur, he's ambitious, he has a very different business model to me. But our two businesses are a good example of how different the uses of AI can be. You can write a publishable book in a day with GPT-4. A lot of people already are doing this and are publishing them. This is not the future, this is now. And yes, these books are at least good enough. Many are very good. This is not the tsunami of crap as I talked about uh, a while back. This is, yeah, a tsunami of good. <laughs> if you know what you're doing, you can co-write really good books because the AI tools amplify your strengths and can make up for your weaknesses. Some people will be AI native creatives and I'm going to use this AI native idea so while I can pivot and build on what I know, others starting now will create very differently. 
In the same way that internet native or mobile native creators are different to those who started in the analog world. Since I have now spent time co-writing with GPT-4, as I said, I know the goal of 10,000 books in a year is possible. If you have not co-written with GPT-4 yet, you won't have had this moment of reckoning as I have done. But it really is quite confronting, even for me. I've been talking about creative AI on this show since 2016, when AlphaGo beat Lisa Doll at the Game of Go, in what was considered the first truly creative move by an AI. I have spent 15 years learning the craft of writing for publication, and I was able to generate 40,000 publishable words in a few hours with GPT-4. It changes the game. And I'm not the only one who feels this way. Frequently, I have felt like the only one feeling this way, but now I realise I'm not, which is making me feel a bit better, to be honest. Hugh Howey blogged this week in an article on ideas and execution. If you don't know, Hugh Howey was one of the early breakout indies who hit the big time with Wool, which is about to come out on Apple TV as a TV show. Now, in his blog post, Hugh talks about a very common experience we have as authors. When we're in a conversation and we say, oh, yeah, I'm I'm an author. And people say, oh, I've got an idea. How about you write it and we can split the money? And we laugh and we say, and we did say, ideas are nothing. Execution is everything. Because all writers have a lot of ideas. Ideas are never the issue. As Hugh says, writing it all out requires an effort that strains even the most prolific of writers. Basically, the execution is everything. The execution is the work of writing. But now that has changed. From his blog post. The most impressive thing about chat is the most difficult thing for any writer. The ability to spin out words. To do the work. With chat, paragraphs pour out like rain. With these tools, even right now, Generating well-written words is no longer difficult. Writing fast is no longer a superpower. A great idea plus guiding the reign of paragraphs into something that is coherent is a skill. And then, of course, you can just upload it as an ebook to KU. But if you want people to read it, or if you want to turn that into a printed book, or if you want to reach readers, if you want to make a living... The challenge is as it's ever been. (laughs) In a world crowded with content, the power of trust and connection and curation becomes even more important. So why am I emphasising all this right now? Because to be honest, I've been thinking some of this for a, a while, but haven't really made it very clear. If you've been reading between the lines in previous shows, you would have got this. But this week, these things have come together to make me want to really spell it out for you. Michael Anderley saying that he would output 10,000 books this year, and Amazon releasing Bedrock, which will enable 10,000 or more Michaels, all generating whatever they want to. If you thought the market was crowded right now, it's about to be a lot more so. But you know me, creatives, or at least if you've been listening for a while, you know me. I am not someone who's like, oh, that's that then. Guess we'll give up. That is not me. All of this made my talk on the creator economy, which I gave as a double act with Orna Ross. We did it together 
our talk came straight after Michael, so it was incredibly well-timed. It made our talk even more important. And of course, I've been talking about this for over 18 months now. I even have a course on this at thecreativepen.com forward slash learn. It's about stepping out of the game that we've all been playing for the last 15 years and building your own direct relationships using direct-to-consumer or to-reader or to-listener e-commerce tools like Shopify, WooCommerce, Kickstarter, Patreon, and many of these other things. And these developments just make me even more determined to build up these other channels. Of course, as ever, I am wide everywhere. I will still publish on all of the platforms alongside all these other things. <laughs> but on my store, I'm the only person. You can't uh, publish on my store. It is my store. Oh, and I haven't mentioned it. It's creativepenbooks.com. <laughs> so there we go. I will use AI tools to create even more personal artisan products and reach people and connect with people personally. Because this is the important thing. I am AI positive, And those who have been listening will know this. I am pro AI and believe it has its problems like fire, like electricity, like the internet. Powerful tools with many issues, but more opportunities. And I don't want to be without any of those now. Of course, there will be regulation, as there was for fire, electricity and the internet. So that will come for sure. But basically, I love the possibilities of AI. I wake up excited every day right now looking for what is coming and what's happening. And in fact, I, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about all of this. It is an exciting world of AI-powered change, and you get to choose how you want to create and how you want to run your author business. At the 20 Book Seville conference, most of my discussions in the breaks and lunches and dinners were on the impact of AI, both with individual authors, but also with long-term industry pros. And despite the huge wave of change, all of us talked about how we're more excited than ever and that these changes are fueling our recommitment to this industry. As a creator, this is a super exciting time. And as a business person, this is a super exciting time. As I mentioned, I was also relieved to find that I am not crazy. That after many years of talking about the potential of AI, the reality has caught up, and it is now a mainstream author conference topic. Many of us who were there thought Seville would be marked as the first author conference where AI was centrally discussed. And no doubt you can expect many more sessions at various conferences about how to incorporate AI tools into your creative process and author business. I also met lots of authors from Spain and other countries and had some great conversations. Seville is a wonderful city, so relaxed, it was lovely and warm and the conference had more networking time than sessions, which was a great balance. Thank you to Heidi Heinz and Enrique Paria from Lantia in Spain, who put the event on. And I will definitely be going back next year for both the content and the networking, and the city itself. There are no dates announced as yet, but I'll let you know when I know. I'm also now planning to go to 20 Books Vegas this year, as I hope there will be many more AI-focused sessions, and I know there will be a lot more discussions. You can see pictures of Seville on my Instagram and Facebook, at JFPenAuthor, or on Twitter, at The Creative Pen. And yes, my face is there. I was there in reality. I am not a bot. <laughs> and also, 
Although the session from 20 Books Spain on AI-assisted cover design is not available online, Nick Stevenson has just released a new course, AI Cover Design for Authors, which includes how to use mid-journey and how to prompt, and aspects of ethical use and copyright concerns. And yes, I have an affiliate link. You can go to thecreativepen.com forward slash AI covers. That's thecreativepen.com forward slash AI covers and links in the show notes. And basically, I've had a look at the course and it's how I made the image for my short story with a demon's eye on Midjourney. And it's published everywhere. It's wide, a wide short story, which I then gave to my cover designer, Jane, to turn into a finished book cover. So you can be AI assisted for your image and then work with a designer to finish the cover. So that is thecreativepen.com forward slash AI covers. So this week I'm off to London for the London Book Fair, where I'm also speaking on one panel on being a technology-enabled author. And I'm also speaking on the Book Vault session about direct print sales. I've got lots of meetings set up and interestingly, this year I'm meeting a lot of AI and blockchain companies, as well as people about licensing rights and more. So it's certainly a busy few weeks and as an introvert, it's pretty draining to have so much people time, but we have to push ourselves out of our comfort zone and remote connection does not work as well for relationship building than actually being somewhere in person and trying the local gin helps (laughs) for me at least. The conversations I had at 20 Books Seville have helped me so much as I feel like I'm not alone in my enthusiasm for AI powered creativity. I also get to prove I am not an AI bot for at least another few months. So my challenge for you this week is to set aside some time to think about what these technological shifts mean for you as a creator and also for your author business if you have one or if you want to have one. Consider how you write, how you publish, how you market, how you connect with readers and how you make money right now. Do you want to build a business at scale as Michael Anderley is doing with his publishing model? Or do you want to double down on being human and become even more artisan, which is my choice? I'm claiming it now. I am an AI-assisted artisan author. What's like A4? AI-assisted artisan author. Now, I'm hoping to have Michael Anderley and also Dan Wood from draft digital on the show in the next few weeks to have a conversation about all this. So fingers crossed we can make that happen. Bottom line. We are human. We are writers. We are creative. We will always want to write. And we will write. Maybe by hand, maybe by typing or by dictating, or co-writing with a generative AI co-pilot. The quality of your ideas and questions and curiosity will define your success in this new wave of technological change, as well as trust and connection with your audience. Critical thinking and openness to possibilities are also important. Don't dismiss what doesn't fit your existing worldview, because it might be time to shift things. It certainly is for me. Interesting times, for sure. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments, and I'm going to look forward to your comments on this this episode. But Christine said about the pro-writing aid episode, wow, thank you for another amazing episode. The one on pro-writing aid was so timely. I've had it for several years now, and just yesterday opened it to run a short story through. I updated it and didn't think much until listening to your episode. Then I ran the short story through it and loved it. The make suggestions section is awesome. 
I am firmly in the pro-AI camp. This is such a gift to see it incorporated into ProWritingAid and just brings even more worth to the programme. Thanks for talking about these new developments. So yes, good to see uh, Christine doing that. And hopefully if you use ProWritingAid, you can make sure you update and get the latest version. Um, Definitely check it out. Sarah Baskerville sent a lovely picture out walking with her dog and said, I'm logging all your links down for when I finish my first novel. Uh, Ian said, I often listen while out riding my bike in Queensland, Australia, and sent a lovely smile with uh, wearing his bike helmet and a blue sky. And I used to live in Queensland. I used to live in Brisbane. So uh, I remember (laughs) uh, riding my bike there too. And Tiffany Dickinson says, walking the polka dot trail with Bridget and Misha who are two black pugs out walking, listening to the podcast. And yes, these pictures are about doubling down on being human and connecting with me as a human. And when I see your face or your dogs or whatever you send me, I love it. I feel like we are more connected. Now, remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen. Send me pictures of where you're listening. Email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Leave a comment on the show notes or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Findaway Voices, and I'll play a word from them in a minute. But on a personal note, I use findawayvoices.com for all my audiobook projects. So my audiobooks are published wide on over 40 platforms, And I found my narrator for my fantasy Map Walker trilogy on the platform. You don't have to be exclusive and you can still sell direct if you publish through Findaway, as I do. I should note that I intend to continue narrating my books as a human. So if you hear my voice, it will be human me up to the point where I tell you otherwise. So no clone me right now as of April 2023. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. And if you are a patron, I will be doing the Q&A probably uh, before the next um, episode. (laughs) So if you have any questions about all this, uh, you can ask them in the Q&A for patrons only. And um, I'm I'm answering questions on craft, on publishing, book marketing, and also on all this futurist stuff. Thanks to new patrons and returning patrons this week, Jessica Klein, David, Kate Scott, Peter Lakeshaw, Hannah Bainbridge and Kelly M. Jacobs. And thank you to all those people who've been supporting for months and years. You are amazing. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate it, especially with all this extra thinking time and trying to bring you all actionable help for AI. You can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Findaway Voices, and then we'll get into the interview. He's listening. She's listening. They're all searching for their next listen. Is your audiobook out there? If not, what's holding you back? After this, it won't be audiobook creation tools. Introducing Findaway Voices Marketplace, the audiobook creation platform built for a world booming with audiobooks. Voices Marketplace gives you a searchable and trusted space to connect with narrators, free production and business tools, and the power to bring your audiobooks to market quickly. We've heard everything you have asked and used that to build an audiobook creation platform for you. Plus, we give you access to the world's largest audiobook distribution network, reaching listeners through more than 40 retail and library partners. No exclusivity. You keep your rights. 
This is your audiobook creation platform. Ready to get started? Make it on Marketplace. John Barton is the founder and managing director of the award-winning independent publisher Vertebrate Publishing, as well as the author of several best-selling mountain biking guides. So welcome to the show, John. Hi, Joe. How, how goes it? Yeah, good. I'm excited to talk to you today. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Well, the one thing that's worth knowing about me is I've never had a CV and never been to a job interview. Uh, and I'm older than I sound as well. I um, I discovered rock climbing when I was probably 13 or 14. And that's pretty much all I did until I was about 30. In fact, my, I met my wife when I was about 31, 32, and she just presumed I'd been working for a decade and had savings and houses and all the rest of it like like normal people had and then she discovered later on in life that that I hadn't I'd just been going around the world climbing so I was very much addicted to climbing I was a professional climber but that probably suggests I made money out of it which I didn't and then I used to do a few odd jobs sort of construction type jobs and we used to clean windows of skyscrapers and jobs like that before it became sort of more professional to earn money and I used to find that fairly soul-destroying. And I think it, it was on some US trips where people were very interested in the sort of cultural history of British climbing. And people were very, I mean, the people were asking us about Lady Diana and the Queen and all sorts of weird stuff in some of the climbing areas we were. But they were very interested in these sort of almost legendary stories of British climbers. And, it, and I sort of inadvertently became the British correspondent with some American climbing publications and just sending over news items. And I realised I quite liked writing and I quite liked recording things and documenting things. And it, it, in, a, it in a roundabout way, and then the other thing, thing that happened is I was doing a lot of mountain biking in the Peak District, the UK Peak District where I live, and the, the guidebooks that were available didn't reflect the kind of people you'd see out on the trails. So the guidebooks would be, you know, the traditional routes. It would be some pictures of men in, in out-of-date gear. And <laughs> what I was seeing was young people, women out there cycling, latest gear, latest bikes, going into some fairly, you know, I mean, the Peak District's not remote, but some fairly challenging terrain and pushing themselves. So I decided to write a guidebook uh, to what I saw, and uh, it sold really well. And that's where the publishing business came from. And we have now three, 400 titles. And ironically, our Peak District Mountain Bike Guide, which was published 18 years ago, is still one of our best-selling books. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know that's if I've brilliant. learned much. Uh, so yeah, that's really, it. so it came from my climbing roots. And the other thing I used to do when I sort of hit my 30s and realized I need to make money, I worked in a graphic design business, which is what this business eventually became. And we used to make all of our money out of selling more stuff to people. So we'd design them a logo, but then we'd sell them stationery and we'd sell them branded T-shirts and plastic pens, endless plastic pens with logos on. And I, I was always a bit uncomfortable with this idea that I was just putting more stuff in the world. And the more stuff I could persuade somebody to have, the more money we would make. And I didn't really like it. It didn't sit very comfortably. And when we published books, I felt I was adding something to the world that people were getting something from and would keep and treasure. Maybe not treasure all of our books, but I, I found it a much more wholesome thing. 
that's where it all started from that's lovely I think obviously book lovers listening as well so fascinating that you said at the beginning that you never had a job interview and you're basically an independent minded chap and a lot of independent people listening as well so I really love that you've come into it but it's a really big difference to go from writing and publishing your own book to publishing other people (laughs) so how did you transition into deciding to publish other people and what have been some of those challenges well, so we, I mean, so we did, I did my first book. I mean, I, I always use the word we because I can't spell or I can't do layout or anything. So I've always been very good at working with people who are brighter and cleverer than me that can do stuff, which I think is one key thing. So the success of the first mountain biking was great. And then I had somebody I knew who did a lot of mountain biking down the south of England. So I said, well, this is the template. This is the format we've done. Can you do it for the south of England? So, so they did do that. We learned, uh, this might sound daft, we learned that people in the north of England aren't interested in buying a guidebook to the south of England. Who who knew? So all of a sudden, we had to get wise in how we were going to sell books that, that weren't on our backyard. So we had to learn marketing and distribution and sales. And then I had a, you know, sort of going back to this idea, this American idea that a lot of stories do get lost, particularly in niche sports. I'm from a a rock climbing, mountaineering background. And some of the stories are, to us, they seem quite normal, you know, 10 people living in a room because we didn't earn any money and we just needed to climb and living out of dumpsters when food gets thrown away at the end of the day in a supermarket, you can go and retrieve it. And I, I think one trip to, Australia, I live for £800 for six months, which is uh, when I tell my wife when we go away for the weekend and we spend £800 just on the hotel bill for the weekend, I remind her we could have gone to Australia for six months, but then she did point out. <laughs> but you in your 20s, a different yeah, yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was younger <laughs> and I could live on out-of-date pasta for days. Um, so, yeah, we discovered that these stories, I mean, the one about the dumpsters is possibly not very interesting, but these stories would get lost and so I tracked down the people that had made these stories and lived these lives and persuaded them to write books. And that's so we produced mountaineering books, climbing books, running books, just by documenting these, these stories. And that then attracts you. You then start attracting submissions and one thing and another. And we made huge, huge numbers of mistakes because I, I found it very hard to say no. And some things I would find interesting might not necessarily be interesting to the wider public. Um, mm. Well, let's let's get further into that then, because obviously my listeners, we are mainly authors, but many of us are also publishers. So I publish my own books. Obviously, people listening might publish their own books. Some people are starting micro publishers almost like yourself, maybe a decade or two ago. Someone will say, oh, can I publish this book? Or somebody's died and left their copyright to someone. So what's emerging in the independent author community is a whole load of micro presses <laughs> like there were in the beginning, I guess. Well, how publishing was until all the big conglomerates. So you mentioned their mistakes. One of them you said was trying to sell stuff for the north of England to the south and vice versa. So geographically specific books, I guess. But what were some of the other mistakes or lessons learned that you've had? I think I think the stepping out of our niche is just because we can produce the best climbing book or the best cycling book that the world has ever seen, it, it really doesn't mean we can produce a good children's book 
or a good fiction book. And I think whenever we stray out of our niche, we have a failure. And I think failure is the wrong word in publishing. I think in traditional publishing, a better way of saying it is you just printed too many. But certainly when we step out of our niche, uh, that can be a failure. Or when we will have a loyal readership and a loyal base like like many independent authors will have. And we put a lot of time and effort into managing that and growing that and looking after that. But I think expecting them and wanting them to buy books that aren't the sort of thing we publish is not a good tactic. And the other thing we learned that people like local guidebooks, they don't like national guidebooks. That's, again, the bigger publishers can be better at that. But the main thing was operating in our niche. I think that's a really good tip. And it's much easier to grow your brand when you're known for a certain thing. But you also said that printing too many copies is a mistake. So I wondered, because again, most of us use print on demand. Uh, Very few independent authors will be doing print runs. I mean, even for a Kickstarter, you print them after you've got the number of books you need to do. So how does your model work in terms of are you doing mainly that sort of print runs or do you also use print on demand? So how does your ecosystem work? So we have a commissioning editor and the brightest people in the business or or the three people, the loudest voices, four people, the loudest voices, form a commissioning team. And we will review submissions and we'll review this publishing strategy. So in theory, it starts with very robust commissioning. And for a book to get through the commissioning process, there's quite a lot of work. And included in that is forecasting. Uh, and we use a lot of information to produce the forecasts, a lot of historical data. We benchmark against other books. We look at the market. We look at the author profile. We look at their social media profile. We look at their track record. So saying that they're willing to do lots of marketing is often very different to doing lots of marketing. And then we will produce the book and we will Typically with our books, we will go to a good size print run on the first printing. It it used to be 5,000 copies. It was just always 5,000 copies. And we haven't had many books where we haven't either made a good inroads into that or gone to a reprint. But now it's much less. It's very rare for us to print 5,000 up front because we can be holding stock for five or six years in some instances, with that amount of print. And sometimes we'll print three or 4,000, and we've had occasions where they've sold out before publication date, which is good but embarrassing. So it, it just tends to be that model. I'm not – and because we've always done that, and a lot of our books aren't suitable for print on demand because one thing we've been very bad at is format control. So at one point, every book coming out had a different format – and many of them just weren't suitable for print on demand. We don't do a lot of mono books. So we don't do a lot of 200 page black and white reading books, narratives. Our books will be different sizes, highly illustrated, flaps on the cover, all those sort of things. So we've just done some short run printing to fill a stock hole and we're pretty much making tempi or losing tempi every time we sell a copy of the 200 we had to print quickly just because the economies don't work for for us on short run and print on demand but i think now the technology is really changed and the printing processes have really come on we're having to look at our formats so we can be much more i won't say digitally led or digital first but we need to be digitally available uh, 
Yeah, it's interesting. So I did go on your website and I noticed I could buy a a paperback from your website, but I primarily read ebooks. I do buy some lovely hardbacks and obviously you have beautiful print books as well. But what about digital? What about ebooks and audiobooks? Yeah, so our best selling books. So if, if we take something like While Swimming in the Lake District or The Climbing Bible, which is a sort of a climbing training book, we won't sell very many digital copies. Certainly a book a, a book about while swimming people it's a large format it's got lots of big photos in it, it doesn't sell at all well on uh on um as a digital book and of course the audio would just be somebody splashing around so that'd be no good <laughs> that's a joke in case everybody missed it so they they just don't lend themselves so we will do an ebook version and we'll do an audiobook version if appropriate but they just don't lend themselves to digital sales some of the books with more global appeal, so the climbing training books, we sell a lot globally. And because the only way we can ship them is from a US warehouse and a UK warehouse, we will sell a lot digitally globally of those books. So some of them work work on Kindle, but mostly it's the physical books. Around about 10% of our revenue is is digital, probably more. Uh, and but, when you say digital, you mean ebook or audio, but rather than say books bought online, because this is the thing now people say, oh, digital. But of course, someone who buys a print book from you on your website, that's is that a digital sale or no? <laughs> no, that's a physical book. So when we talk about digital, we are literally talking about ebook or audio book or and then I probably can't be clear on print on demand, whether it is. And then print on demand then merges with sort of micro print runs. So, yeah. It depends on the book, but yeah, probably 15% of our revenue is ebook and audio. And it's interesting because I have for the first time just done a hardback with colour photos and I've used Book Vault here in the UK and I've done that with Kickstarter. So I, it was kind of a small print run and then sort of sent them all out. But it's the first time I have done this and it makes me think that doing more of these beautiful books is a good thing in a world where for example there's a lot of digital creation where it's hard to stand out so do you think on balance that your business model will get better or are you thinking of changing what you do for example you could do some more narrative stories or narrative versions that are just plain text for digital sales in order to expand. So are you thinking of pivoting your business model at all? Yeah, very much so. I think one of the problems we generated for ourselves is some of our narrative titles were very heavily illustrated. They had all the bells and whistles on the printing and they were very labor intensive, lots of editing. Somebody had written a foreword, somebody somebody wrote a postscript to the book or somebody you know there'd be a preface there'd be photos everywhere there'd be fancy end papers and foil blocking and all the rest of it and it was okay while we were fairly new and people were we were hoovering up our stuff once margins got a bit tighter and once the printing really started going up we we were sort of stuck with that people expected 24, 36 pages of colour plates in the book did make for some quite expensive books. What we're looking at now, which is um, 
which is when I when I listen to I, I I must make a criticism about your podcast. They're not quite long enough because I listen to them when I go running, and I tend to run for about an hour and a half. <laughs> And I have to, I literally had to stop, get this. I had to stop in the rain two nights ago to change podcasts. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> but thanks for listening. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening. But if you could just do the odd, you could just do a special long distance runner podcast every now and again. Just, just put that in. Or if I was a bit more tech savvy, one could follow the, one could follow uh, straight Or, or, or you could other. change it to the slower speed. You know, you can speed podcasts up. You can also slow them down. Oh, uh, yeah, but then there'd be a tempo be really annoying. running. I'd just get really unfit. <laughs> I'd be waiting but, for the next word. We've almost forgotten the question, haven't we? No, we're so, talking about pivoting business models. Yeah, so I, so what we do need to do is we we need to get a workflow in place for narratives. We get a lot of submissions, a lot of good books, and we had sort of found ourselves in this situation where we're producing these very lavish books. But in the autumn, when printing basically doubled in price and we were all panicking about the cost of living crisis, we actually put a few books out with the minimum basic work. And we found the sales weren't really affected. People wanted the good story. They, they didn't particularly need 24 pages of the author showing them how great they can get that off their Instagram feed. So, yeah, we are actively now putting a lot of our looking to put a lot of our narratives out in B format paperback. We can launch digitally. We can do things like in stock protection with Amazon. So while we'll have a print run, we'll also have a, a POD edition there available. And mm. certainly with some of our American publishing Rather than shipping pallets of books to America, we're just setting them up as PODs. Yeah, and printing them there. It just makes sense, doesn't it? Because yeah. the other thing I was going to ask is about Kickstarter, because there's a, a small press I follow, Microcosm Press. I don't know if you know yeah, them. Yeah. yeah, they do a fantastic job of Kickstarters for all their books. That's how they do every single book. They see what seems to be they do a Kickstarter and then you can buy it from their store. And I, I see, I think you did it for Waymaking. That was one of yours. We've done three or four Kickstarters over the years. Waymaking was the one that was most successful. It's, I mean, the obvious downfall for us with Kickstarter is it's a lot of intense marketing because you've just got that opportunity, haven't you? Mm. And you, that marketing doesn't go anywhere because you're putting all that into a Kickstarter campaign. You, I mean, while you have got the names and the addresses and one thing and another, it just thought it sort of sits on the Kickstarter platform, whereas we're actually with our so uh we've just done a caving book it's very easy to find all the cavers in the world they all drink in the same bar so kickstarter i think is very good to, to sort of i mean i'm not a kickstarter expert but it's very good to to reach new audiences and market and do new things and but I think with us, strictly hill walking, we're mountain running, we're we're climbing, mountaineering, wild swimming, and we can find those people quite effectively. Um, mm. So I mean, even I guess old school media, just that there are magazines and things that you can advertise in, and Facebook groups and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And there will always be the world's best climber, and you can always. Well, you can't always persuade them, but you can often persuade those sort of people to promote your book. So I, I found Kickstarter Waymaking was very good because we were with the Waymaking book, we were publishing all these mountaineering narratives and we had some Australian climbers, some US climbers, some European climbers, and lots of British climbers. And 
and we we do a pre-order offer so people come to the website and order the book and i started doing some analysis on the, the names that we're ordering it now at christmas there was lots there was a gender split was fairly 50 50 lots of women lots of men if it wasn't christmas it was all men i think one kicks one one pre-order 98 of the orders were male names and i think we deduced that at christmas wives girlfriends mothers were buying books for their their boyfriends sons husbands and during the rest of the year it was just men buying books for themselves and i think we came to the conclusion that the adventure narrative market was pretty much male dominated and this was when we did way making which was probably 6 or 7 years ago and the best seller the mountaineering best seller list on amazon was would usually be 98 out of 100 books would be written by men the two that weren't one would be written by bernadette macdonald and that would be a, a biography of a man and one would be nan shepherd's living mountain which is a great book that always sits there so we we did waymaking because it was an anthology of of new writing uh, poetry and art by women about adventure and really the idea was to sort of bring some women to the fore and hopefully I don't sound patronizing uh, and just give them the the uh, the confidence the pla- and the platform yeah. oh, well yeah. I bought it I bought oh, that brilliant. book yeah so uh, and I guess yeah and I mean I would comment I know and I'm not saying this is about you but the adventure niche in general it's a lot of just sort of blokes with beards on the front of books <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like totally. in terms of branding it's not yeah. so accessible it is interesting now to me the travel niche is different to the adventure yeah. niche so yeah. i think you're more broadly travel although it's funny isn't it because like mountain biking you could say is kind of adventurous or is yeah. it hobbies does it go in hobbies no i mean we i mean in all honesty while we have some what books we would call travel we are strictly adventure sports outdoor pursuits uh, and the, the reason we went to Kickstarter with the waymaking is because we had to go and find some women, not, <laughs> yeah. not in a creepy way. <laughs> no, no. And the book is wonderful. So I, yeah. I'll link, link to it in oh, the notes. Thanks. But yeah. I think it, it's interesting. Like you said, it comes back to niche and you stepped out of your niche in for that book, yeah. but it did really well. I think it got a lot of press as well, didn't it? Yeah, it and, it, and it, it, it was re- really. And the, the aim of that book, and I know we're talking about Kickstarter, the aim of that book, and it would have failed had the women in it and other women not started publishing in the adventure pursuits market and they have and a couple of the women have actually started their own micro publishing businesses up from their work on that book and either last year well certainly last year i can't quite remember the year before we published more books by women than we did by men and in this year coming we've got more more books coming out by women than men but i think for us and the niche uh, you know, I won't say it was all waymaking that did it, but it definitely achieved what we wanted to achieve because it, it goes back to what I was saying about my first book when we were going out. When I was climbing, when I was younger, you know, there was, women were climbing, men were climbing, but women weren't writing the books. And if I went mountain biking, there'd be plenty of women mountain biking, but you wouldn't see any guidebooks written by a woman. And it were very, our, our, one of the first rules we had at the publishing business is we wouldn't publish a book, a guidebook, without a photo of a woman in it because it just wouldn't represent what was happening out there. Mm. Uh, we've gone as far as, uh, as saying now that we have to make sure we have a diversity in our publishing with our authors. Um, mm. No, I think that's great. And again, it's about seeing 
seeing somebody like you doing something out there. So I, I applaud your diversity push there. Let's just come back to the idea of authors who might want to pitch. So maybe there's some people listening and they're like, oh, I would really like to pitch you <laughs> or pitch another publisher or an agent. And you mentioned earlier, you said that you look at an author's profile and an author's marketing and their track record. So what are your tips for authors who want to pitch an idea, whether that's to you or or someone else? So I think the crucial thing is you have to look at the output of that publisher you're pitching to. Really, I mean, we don't publish poetry. We don't publish narrative. We don't publish children's books anymore. So there's literally no point sending us crime fiction or indeed really fiction at all. We only publish in the sports that we publish in. So we're not interested in skateboarding or surfing or anything like that, or indeed sailing books. So do your research. Don't just send stuff in. I think think getting to know the publisher is useful uh, if you've got the time. I mean, certainly following them on social media is just crucial, unless you don't use social media, which is fine. Uh, going to some of their events, reading their bestsellers is all good. The, it, it, this might sound stupid. I, the phone will often go. People will p- start pitching the book down the phone, which is not ideal, but it's. It, I understand it's fair enough. And we'll, they, I will often say, well, we like books like Waymaking, and this is what we did with Waymaking. And we will often get that book criticised. Ah, oh, yeah, my book's really good. I didn't like Waymaking because it the stories were too short or the, I hadn't heard of the authors or it was all women. It, literally, those sort of things have been said to me. But my book's better. That's just, that's like, oh, well, thanks very much. Stick a copy in the post. We don't return manuscripts is usually the answer that you get. So it's re- respecting what the publisher has published and realistically we want an engaging story. We want a relatable story. We want something that's in our strategy. But it, it does often come down to the marketing planet. As self-published authors will know, there's nobody better to sell a book than the author. Even if you're working with Penguin Random House, you will always be able to sell more books, more of your own books than any other process, uh, you know, realistically. So the author profile is key for us. Um, Mm. we have to be commercial so it's what the author brings to the table from a marketing point of view is crucial so if someone's someone was to send a pitch email it should be the first paragraph about the book and the second paragraph about the author platform and marketing ideas well we just have submission guidelines so we need to know about them we need to know what the competitive titles are in their opinion we need to know their marketing reach some samples of the work Although, you know, have they written before, all those sort of things. So we have quite detailed submission guidelines. And And a big tip is to follow those. I mean, it's so funny. I've obviously been to these events where they tell you stuff and everyone says, no, follow the guidelines. And (laughs) I imagine a lot of people don't follow the guidelines. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just, yeah, about only about one in 10 of our submissions follow the guidelines. Wow. The other thing to appreciate is, you know, we're not a bad company. We've got quite a slick operation. But in terms of new authors for Vertebrate, we're taking on very few a year. It's less than 10 brand new authors a year. They're probably less than five brand new authors 
Mm, so you're as in your commissioning books from people who've already written books like on rock climbing or mountain biking yeah well we have books we want so we will often go out and find that author but in in terms of interesting submissions that come into the intray that we end up subsequently publishing it is actually very few it's very difficult to get to get into even us and I'd say we're quite open and receptive. It's very difficult for us to publish something that's just landed in the submissions tray. Um, mm. But but equally, we will look at submissions and we will feed back uh, where we can. If it's something we're interested in, it might go right through to the commissioning uh, meeting. So there'll be a lot of, we produce what we call a book investment proposal. And that can iron out a lot of stuff. And we will feed, even if we refuse the book, I have seen quite a lot of books we have refused subsequently published, whether they've taken our advice or not, but they have actually gone on to get a publishing deal, which is always great to see, especially if they send me a copy. That's always nice if I give them nice <laughs> feedback. And I think one of the questions, I mean, a lot, lot of indie authors listening uh, is, are publishers interested if an author who has published themselves and now are interested in a deal? Let's assume this is a new book. So if I came to you and said, I've got this new book and I've got 30 30 plus titles and here's my sales history. And are you interested in independent authors? Yeah, very much so. I mean, our one of our best-selling books was actually published independently. He published two books independently. There were one's called Bothy Tales, one's called The Last Hill Walker. Really nice guy. And he'd got so far with what he could do and he wanted time to write more books. And we republished them under our imprint and have subsequently done two new books with him. So the book was established. It was so his royalty rate was is is that well, it's actually 50%. So it's it's a stonking good royalty rate. So it works for everybody. And we've been able to take what he did, which was a lot of digital sales, and have the confidence and the cash flow to print good numbers and have them distributed globally as well. So, yeah, so we'll work on merit. And if an indie author's successful, then it makes forecasting so much easier because they're bringing real sales data to the commissioning meeting. You know, it's good to hear because, I mean, I remember coming to like the Future Book, the Booksellers Conference here in the UK yeah. back in 2012 and was kind of treated like a, an outcast and indie authors were not welcome <laughs> about a decade ago. But it feels like things have changed. And with a business mindset, certainly a lot of indie authors have a business mindset. That's what you have as as a publisher, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of one of my things. It's not massively commercial, but I I tend to just want to work with people I like and like working with. What their track record is and immaterial. I think indie authors are good because you know straight away you know what they like to work with. If they've managed to get books out before, they're an achiever. I mean, it, you know, writing a book, uh, as you know, is is a lot of work, and you're putting yourself out there. You're really putting your head above the parapet and asking people to like what you do. And that can be quite a challenge. And if you're working with a first-time author, you know, we've had some horrendous problems with getting them to let go of the manuscript. Might be because they're climbers and they don't like letting go, but it's uh, um, that's a rubbish joke. You should edit oh, that no, it's a good, No, it's a good joke. I Just like it. edit it out. <laughs> Um, um, I, I did I did want to come back because we're almost out of time. But I actually I want to ask you. Originally, you emailed me and said you wanted to address my publisher bashing. <laughs> I'd love to know what you particularly disagree with, or whether it's just the type of publisher. Because not all publishers are not the same, right? Like all authors yeah. are not the same. But yeah, any myths or issues you want to correct? Now you're on the show. 
I think this this always comes back to haunt me. I was on Al Humphreys, the adventurer author. I was on his podcast and he dug out something I'd said about pseudo adventurers trying to write stories about something that anybody could have done. So he also <laughs> caught me out. I mean, we we hear quite a lot. I mean, we're nice people and we work hard and we put our authors first and all the rest of it. And you do hear that phrase, oh, I got I got ripped off by my publisher or my publisher didn't listen or my publisher this, my publisher that. And at the end of the day, they're just human beings. If you've got to deal with Penguin Random House, you're actually working, you might be working with some really nice editors and marketing people and book designers. And so I think when I hear that, that sort of the publisher did this, I think it's not really, it's not necessarily fair on the industry of publishing. We are commercial organizations, obviously, but the best favor a publisher can always do is for its author is to be solvent and that, that requires making money. I think I think what where and I'm not saying people make mistakes here, I think what a lot of authors don't do is scrutinize the contract and really understand what they're signing. And just knowing the difference between a net royalty rate and an RRP royalty rate is is huge. And I think authors have to just sit down with that contract and understand every line in it, as boring as that might sound, before they sign it and have some real real world examples. You know, what does 10% mean? What does actually that mean? How much money will I get per book sold? How many books are you expecting to sell? How much marketing support will I get? Will I get paid expenses if I get asked to go to a festival? I think all that should be asked. And, you know, you wouldn't sign your house mortgage without understanding what your repayments were and how long those repayments had to be done. Well, maybe some people do, but I (laughs) I think that that can often lead to conflict down the line when you realise that, your royalty check is only eighteen pounds, or um, yeah, for the whole year or so. But no, yeah. I'm so glad you said that because that is a lot of the. I mean, I talk a lot about this and try and educate people around contracts, and I have absolutely no problem with people signing with traditional publishers and have done myself for foreign rights and things like that. But exactly as you say, you have to understand what you're signing, and I guess one of my issues is often the clauses that are in the standard contracts that you know, and publishers. To be fair, they're going to offer the best deals for themselves. And it's up to the author or and or the agent to negotiate it. But it's yeah. the taking all rights for the life of copyright, all formats, that kind forever. of yeah, forever. <laughs> but but an author shouldn't sign that. And yet it seems like some of the big big companies they want everything and otherwise there's no choice. But just coming back on what you said, you're now going to have to talk about what is net versus RRP royalty rate, because I know people listening are like, oh, what is that? What shall I do? So can you just explain that just so people know? So if the published price of the book is £20 and you're being offered a 10% royalty, that's not £2. That will typically not be £2. So an RRP, so that's the recommended retail price in the UK or the sales price or whatever, is if you're being offered a royalty on the RRP, uh, then the percentage, then it will be £2 if it's 10%. That's never done. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you say it's never done, but a lot of authors think that is exactly what they're signing so that must be clear and certainly with agented books we find agented books they always they try and get a, an rrp royalty which is fine we you know, we had a small children's imprint and m- many of those books were rrp'd uh so then the net rate is it so if it's 10 percent, it's 10 percent of what we receive when we sell a copy 
And that can be very, very murky. So if we sell a copy, of, if we sell a book on Amazon, Amazon will give us 40% of the retail price. So if it's £10 book, we'll get £4 and we'll give the author whatever the, the rate is, 10% or 20% of that, or depends on the book. Or in John Burns's case with his last Hillwalker, it's 50% of that. So that's £4. But, but we don't get £4 because we for that Amazon sale, we have a distribution charge, which is another 10%. And we might have a repping charge, which might be another 5%. And we might have some delivery costs. And there can be all sorts of costs that you could potentially lump in. And you might end up receiving 50p for the book. And then Mm. you might end up paying the author 10% on 50p, which is not very much. I don't think many publishers do that. We certainly wouldn't. But I think it's this is why some real world examples are required. And obviously, the net rate is is very good if you're selling direct. So if you sell a book at, at full price, then the net rate is obviously higher. So also understanding what the split of sales is for a publisher. So 30% of our books are sold via Amazon, which is the highest discount we give. Obviously, we give Amazon the highest discount. Why wouldn't we? So... Mm-hmm. that's that's what the net rate means and i've looked at plenty of contracts for people i know who've been offered contracts with big publishers and they've asked me to look at them and the other one to look out for is special sales so you can often have a lower uh net rate for special sales and i think it's very important to understand what the publisher means by special sales yeah i mean it could mean anything presumably it it, it could mean yeah i've I've, you know so it's for special sale you'll get a you'll get a net rate of five percent and it's just buried there in the contract and then all of a sudden you might find that 90 percent of your books are special (laughs) yeah (laughs) it is and to me this is interesting and people listening this is publishing this really is I mean the writing for us for for you and me as well I mean the writing of the book is completely separate really to the business side and I'm an artist and I'm a businesswoman and those are two sides of the coin in the same way you're a you, you are still an author but you're a businessman being separate to the oh I love this book type of thing you mm-hmm. can absolutely love a book but the business is very specific and you have to be interested in both of these things I think to be successful you can't yeah. just be interested in the art no, you can't. And and I'll often say to people at the start of their book project, just so I can manage their expectations and make sure they're happy at the end of it, is what are you trying to achieve from the book? And invariably, the answer is something I just want to get my story out. I want to inspire other people. I, I want to put something down on paper for my children or whatever. When the book's published, I'm sorry to say the phone calls are all, you know what the phone calls are about. Yeah, where's my million, million <laughs> yeah. pounds? Yeah, the phone calls are all about sales. Uh, now, fortunately, I understand that. So I think it's, I think it's important uh, at the very start to, under, to understand what that sales and remuneration is. Uh, you know, we do have authors, a lot of our authors will only write one book. They've done something amazing and they want to tell the story and they have a day job. And if they make money out of the book, great. If they don't make money out of the book, it's not the end of the world. But understanding what that return is important. And we welcome, and I often advise, particularly if we get into a tricky situation on on negotiation, I'll often advise the author to go and speak to, in the UK, it's the Society of Authors. And apologies, I don't know if they're global, but there will be representative bodies all around the world. Go and speak to the Society of Authors. We find they're very helpful 
they will come down on us as a publisher very hard, but then they're actually very reasonable. And when you actually get to the point where you're signing, it's it, it, you very much get a better contract and a better understanding out of it. So to seek advice, if, if you've not signed a publishing contract, you shouldn't sign it blindly. You should get advice. Yeah. And if you're doing it through an agent, then you still need to understand all the clauses because, I, yeah, I think the other thing people don't necessarily understand is that relationships change. You might change agents. The publisher might change. Publishing houses get bought. They get sold. Things change. Yeah. You know, uh, you and I are not going to live forever. So <laughs> there's lots of things to think about because, of course, copyright goes on after your death. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly in the genre I'm publishing, I'm sending lots of uh, lots of royalty checks to estates. It's, oh God, climbing is a nightmare. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, it's <laughs> no. just, yeah. Oh, happy times, John. Yeah, yeah. You might not have seen him for months, but at least you're now getting a royalty check. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So, where can people find you and Vertebrate online? Uh, so, our website is adventurebooks.com, all one word. And there's contact details on there. If anybody's got follow-up questions, I'll happily try and try and answer them. And we're vertebrate publishing, we're all over social media. The Twitter I do, so that's a bit irrelevant and full of rubbish. And I think the Instagram, uh, the vertebrate publishing Instagram is a bit more professional. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, John. That was great. No, thanks. Thanks for that, Joe. I enjoyed it. So I hope you found the discussion with John interesting and also my introduction around the developments in AI. Let me know what you think by leaving a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel, tweet me at the creative pen with a double N or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. And remember, if you want to get that course on AI cover design for authors, which is about prompts for mid-journey and aspects of ethical use and copyright concerns, you can check out Nick Stevenson's new course using my affiliate link if you'd like to support the show at thecreativepen.com forward slash AI covers. Next week, I'm talking about book marketing, how to get publicity for your book with Halima Katoon. And a little tip as we're going to talk about it, you can get ChatGPT to write a press release for you aimed at a specific target market. And remember, there is a free level of ChatGPT. Here's a prompt to get you started. Basically, you need to pre-train ChatGPT with your prompt to get it, get it in the mood for creating. You can type... You are an experienced and expert PR and marketing consultant specialising in press releases to media in the X niche and where X is your target market. I will give you the sales description for my book. Then please write me a press release for the book and then it will output whatever it is specific to that market. Then you can ask it for 10 different headline variations or rewrite this for a different publication, like, um, I don't know, aiming at new mothers instead of women's health magazines and all of that. But more on that next week. In the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.